Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. And the coronavirus has changed our spending habits, but are they changed forever? Will some businesses and jobs disappear? And how long will it take for our economy to come back? The Chief Economist of the Australia Institute, Richard Dennis, thinks some of these big COVID-19 changes linked to working from home, will have a huge impact on your future. Then I'll talk to Australia's own rocket man, Adam Gilmore of Gilmore Space Technologies, who thinks he will be doing an Elon Musk and launching his and our first private business rocket, which might have his venture capital-backed operation reaching for the stars into a billion-plus organisation within a couple of years. And finally, how does an accountant throw everything in and start a nationally recognized juice and health food business like Emma and Tom's. Co-founder Tom Griffiths joins us to tell us his success story. And so let's rub the crystal ball with Richard Dennis to see how this damn virus has changed us forever. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Peter. Great to uh, talk to you, mate. And I, I have heard you on a number of uh, radio outlets talking about the analysis you've done um, and, and what surprised me more than anything was the way you identified businesses that really have um, really copped it, uh, I guess if they're in CBD areas, but others have really done well uh, by being in the, sub- the suburbs. That's right. And look, the economy is always changing. Some businesses are always growing, some are always shrinking. But, you know, COVID is basically an enormous magnifying glass that is, is causing these things to happen uh, a lot faster. And the data reveals, you know, some very big spikes for, for particular businesses and particular industries. So, yeah, if you were, um, uh, if you're in the dry cleaning business right now in the CBD, you're in real trouble. But there's plenty of restaurants that are doing a roaring trade on takeaway uh, that 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 used to, that are serving more people than they could have ever fit into their restaurants. Yeah, that's a really good point, uh, Richard. Um, one of the interesting things I've found as an economist who no longer really acts like an economist, I'm more an economist commentator now. But I've never ever used in my life or, or, or differentiated between the suburban economy and the CBD economy. But it really is relevant because the CBD economy, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, are absolutely screwed while the suburban economies are going gangbusters. Look, absolutely, and uh, this might sound a bit weird, but uh, uh, a lifetime ago, I, I lived in Newcastle when there was the, an earthquake, mm. quite a big earthquake in Newcastle, killed a lot, of, killed a few people, and yeah. destroyed a lot of buildings. Yep. And the CBD of Newcastle took decades to recover because the big shopping centres that had always drawn people into the middle were literally inaccessible for months. So people kind of started to change their culture, their patterns of behaviour and, uh, and, and, and sort of suburban shopping centres took over. But once those roads were opened up again, people didn't go back into the city for the reasons that they used to go there and with the frequency that they used to go there. So uh, I think people are learning to live differently without the CBD. Mm. Uh, And the CBD will be there when this virus is over, but people's interactions with it, I think, are going to be quite different. Yeah, and it's interesting. When we first were locked down nationally, I think it sort of coincided with school holidays. And so a lot of um, people who 
you know, were forced to go home from the offices and said, can't wait to get back. But I think over time when kids have gone back to school, there's a, a pretty big cohort who likes the idea of not commuting, uh, the, the cost of commuting, eating from home rather than takeaway lunches and saving a whole lot of money. Have you been able to work out what percentage might be the the group that you know was trying to argue with their boss? I want to work from home. Look, I think it's harder than that because I think a very large percentage of people uh, who have worked say nine to five in an office, a very large percentage are talking to their colleagues and to their bosses about working in the office less. So uh, imagine, for example, that all of the commuters decided to work from home one day per week. That means on – and if that was spread out, like let's assume they didn't all take the same day off. Mm. If, of course, they all want Friday, Richard, of course. They all want Friday, but they're not going to yeah, get it. <laughs> well, well let, let, let's assume, you know, all of the commuters negotiated simply working from home one day a week. Mm. That's a 20% reduction in the number of cars on the road in peak hour every day. That's a 20% reduction in the number of people buying coffees in the CBD each day. So even if people do something as, as not radical as just working from home one day per week, the consequences uh, when when millions of people behave that way, the consequences for things like uh, peak times on the road, peak times on the train and, and, and peak coffee load at 11 o'clock and peak sandwich load mm. at 12.30, they're all going to be radically different if a lot of people make a little change. So trying to forecast where this ends uh, is, is quite difficult, yeah. but it's it, it would be heroic to think that a significant percentage of people won't be working from home more often than they used to and working from home more often, as you said, is going to shift economic activity away from the CBD and into the suburbs. Yeah, and it could also help uh, house prices as well because people you know, can't, can't effectively live in the Blue Mountains and maybe come to work once a week or twice a week and that, that trip down from the Blue Mountains once or twice a week might be okay compared to doing it five days a week. So that could lead to more demand in the, the regions and outer suburbs and that could change a lot of house prices around the big cities. Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, in my own experience, I, I, I travel a lot. I, I go, I give a lot of talks. I go to a lot of meetings. And in the last six months, they've all happened by Zoom. Now, I don't think for a minute that when travel opens up, I won't be giving talks in person again. But I also don't doubt for a minute that a lot of the things I'm asked to do going forward mm. will happen. Uh, via Zoom. So again, I think we have to be careful to not think it's going to be all or nothing. But uh, if 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 a million people who who never used to uh, substitute Zoom for a physical meeting start substituting Zoom for a physical meeting, uh, you know, when a million people do that in a city, that's going to make a big difference. Yeah. Now I, I read something brilliant this morning, Richard, which I actually wrote, so I'll share it with you. <laughs> I'd love to get your reaction to this because I was reading the story in the Sydney Morning Herald talking about how the CBD economies were being affected by the change of habits and people working from home. And then I thought, well, hang on. If employers start effectively in some cases demanding that their bosses let them work from home, maybe the bosses then will say, well, if you've proved to me I don't need you in the office, then I might get a worker in the Philippines or Thailand to replace you because they're a lot cheaper there. Is, the, is this potentially a trend 
that might not you know, uh, work in favour of people who want to work at home? Oh, look, absolutely. And, and let's be clear, that, that trend has been developing in Australia for decades. Mm. Um, uh, you know, first it was call centres, then it was accountants. You know, the, basically, uh, when all of the offshoring and outsourcing began, I, I think people in professions, you know, comfortable middle class professions thought, oh, that's a bit rough, but it'll never happen to me. Mm. Well, you know, it's the, 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 the how, how to put it, the trend's been emerging slowly for a long time. It yeah. started with the graphic designers and it moved on to the drafts people. Um, you know, so lawyers, accountants, all sorts of professions. So that trend's been occurring. So, yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, I think there will be some employers saying, well, actually, you're right. If you don't, if I don't have to reach out and touch you, I, I don't care whether you're in the suburbs or, or 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 internationally, as long as you're there when I need you. So I think that's a that's a threat. Uh, but a that threat was evolving, and b the ability for people to come together and actually sort out the hard decisions in person really is valuable in any organisation. Now, I think people are rethinking whether everyone needs to be there five days a week just in case, uh, but I do think it's quite a big change for an organisation uh, to, to outsource, especially overseas, a, a lot of tasks because when the tasks are going smoothly, that's fine, uh, but running a business is, is coping with the hard bits, not the easy bits. Yep. Now, what about the state versus state conflict that's causing many economic issues? H have you been able to, to approximately guess what might happen to economic growth because of, you know, the, you know, the smart politics of, um, you know, Premier McGowan, um, uh, in SA, in Queensland, all those premiers, they're all thinking, well, you know, keeping my safe, state safe is going to be really well received politically, but economically, what do you think the impact's going to be? Uh, look, you know, I, I think there's no doubt that, you know, lockdowns are bad for the economy in the short term. There's also no doubt that second, third, fourth, fifth waves of infection are bad for the economy in the long term. And uh, everybody, uh, health, health professionals, economists and politicians are, are grappling with that. Uh, I think that no one should be surprised in Australia after 20 years of political parties winning votes saying, I'll, I'll be strong at the international borders, I'll protect you from the other, vote for me, I'll mm. keep them out. Uh, I, I don't think, I, I'm surprised that anyone's surprised that this strategy is just as successful when wielded by a state premier uh, as it has been when wielded by uh, the federal governments. Now, that said, uh, I think that um, uh, I, I think that it's inevitable that the the lockdowns are going to be loosened over time, regardless of whether that happens in two weeks or six weeks. That makes a big difference right now. Whether it's two weeks away or six weeks away in Victoria it makes a big difference to anyone in Victoria. But in in two years' time, that'll be rounding error. In two years' time, that's trivial. The mm. the long run macroeconomic consequences of this we are are already baked in. Uh, whether we whether we open up today or whether we open up in four weeks or six weeks, it, it, it matters enormously for someone running a small business right now today. It doesn't matter enormously for the GDP statistics in two years' time. Mm. Uh, on that subject. Um can you tell me what you think the September quarter is going to look like? 
Um, is it going to be less than 7%? Um, you know, uh, it, it would have been better, much better, if Victoria hadn't had to go into lockdown. And the third part of the question is, could we be, be a bit surprised that the, the growth in the suburbs might offset you know, the, the, the slow growth in the CBD areas? And finally, the fact that we spent $65 billion last year in going overseas and all that money's now being spent in Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi and Kogan, is this going to, in a sense, give us a, a better September figure than some people might be thinking? Well, there's a lot in that question. Yeah, me... well, you're pretty smart. I think you can handle it. <laughs> yeah, let, let me start at the beginning. Um, we just saw GDP fall by uh, by four times more than GDP fell in the 1991 recession. So if you think the 1991 recession was big, uh, we just saw in one quarter GDP fall four times that much. This is the biggest recession in modern history, arguably uh, the biggest recession since the Great Depression. We didn't used to calculate quarterly GDP the same way back then. But again, if the 91 recession was bad, this thing is 400 times bigger. If the 1991 was a wave that knocked us over, well, this wave is four times taller than the one that knocked us over. Mm. So uh, I understand why everyone thinks is interested in uh, what's going to happen in the September quarter. You know, will it fall another 0.1 of a percent or, or will it grow a whole 0.4 of a percent? Well, if you just fell 100 metres down a cliff, um, whether you climb up one metre... <laughs> or one and a half metres is is rounding error. So, you know, like everyone, I, I hope we see a positive number in September. Uh, but we have to distinguish, it's going to sound a bit technical here, but we have to distinguish between the rate of growth of GDP and the level of GDP. We just saw the level of GDP fall 6 7%. Well, if it then grows by, you know, one point something it doesn't matter our economy is far smaller than it was in december yes, last shrunk. year yep. it's and, and our economy the level of gdp the level of gdp is going to be lower than it was in december 2019 probably for two years so i think an easy way to think about that is if you used to earn a hundred thousand dollars a year and then you took a pay cut to ninety thousand and someone said don't worry you're going to get a 0.4 percent increase in september well, all I know is I'm still earning a lot less than I used to. So the size of the national economy is a lot smaller than it used to be. And if we start to grow, that's great. But it's years before we get back to where we were. And uh, the, the, the growth that I do expect we'll see in the suburbs the growth that will come from substituting uh, restaurant meals and, and appliance purchases for overseas holidays, all those effects are real. Bring it on, sooner the better. But it's years before we get to having a national income as big as we had you know, before the bushfires. Mm. So, therefore, your 2021 prediction, mm. um, some economists have, have been saying that you know, there will be much better growth in that time. You've made the point it's, it's much better growth off a smaller base. But are you, are you negative on 2021 or are you cautiously positive? Well, 
the economy in 2021 will be smaller than it was in 2019. Yeah. Doesn't matter how bullish you are about GDP growth rates, the economy next year is going to be smaller than it was last year. That means it's going to employ less people next year than it was last year. That means we're going to spend less in the shops next year than we did last year. So, uh, you know, again, we've got to move away or in addition to talking about the rate of growth, we've got to keep our eye on the level of income. So 2021 is going to be a bad year because it's we're going to earn and spend less in 2021 than we spent in 2019. Now, we also have to be very careful you know, asking economists what's going to happen, the main determinant of what's going to happen is what the government does, right? Interest rate policy is done and dusted. Right? Yep. We've done that. The, the, the only lever that can be pulled is fiscal stimulus. If we keep pulling it, then the economy will grow faster. But if, as has been foreshadowed, the government wants to reduce, wants to spend less in the September quarter than it spent in the June quarter, if the government starts spending less, well, that means the economy will be even smaller. So it's hard for an economist to predict what's going to happen to the economy when the government won't tell us what it's going to do with, uh, with government spending. But if the government is going to cut spending, the economy is going to shrink. All right, now, I, I know you've, like, like me, when I was teaching at the University of New South Wales, I'm sure you studied Pandemics 101, 202, 303. <laughs> oh, <I remember laughs> not, well. <laughs> not. But so what I want you to do now is look at what you said then, which some people might be saying, gee, I wish Switzer hadn't interviewed that negative bastard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but not all of them, but some of them. But if, for example, a vaccine shows up, you know, even before uh, Mr. Hunt's January vaccine, it comes up earlier and as a consequence we start travelling around Australia like never before and then we start flying to Europe in March rather than June, would you run to your calculators and, and computer models and start upgrading what might happen to the growth of this shrunken base that you've been scaring us with? Oh, look, I'm not trying to scare people. I'm no, just, I know. Just I'm, just te I'm teasing, <laughs> I'm teasing you because normal people listen to your maths and, and get scared. But, yeah, but, but given well, that, Richard, if, if, if a vaccine comes along and it has this sort of miracle economic effect in the sense that we all start travelling, borders are open quicker than we expected, and we go to Europe yep. in March rather than June, would you then upgrade your expectations about 2021? Absolutely. I'll upgrade my growth rate expectations. Yep. No doubt about it. Yep. You know, there's no doubt that if we get a vaccine and I can travel and you can travel and, and, and foreign students can start coming here and, you know, maybe even again we have tourism coming to Australia, yeah. the faster that happens, the faster the rate of growth of GDP will pick up. But as I said, we just fell down a 7% cliff. And, you know, if, if the economy grew at 6% next year, that would be twice the historic rate of growth. Like we haven't grown above 3% in years. Mm. If the economy grew at 6% next year, we'd still have an economy that was smaller than 2019. Now, I'd rather live in one that's grown at 6% than 3%. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, and the faster we can get a vaccine, the more stimulus the government pours in, uh, the more quickly consumers get confident and start spending the cash that they've stockpiled, um, the faster that happens, the better. Absolutely. But 
unemployment will be higher next year than it is now. Uh, employment will be will be lower next year than it was last year. It's going to take a long time to wash out. But the yeah, the quicker we get moving with vaccines and stimulus, the the, the quicker we can get back to where we used to be. Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute. Thanks very much. Thank you. Hey Peter. Hi Claire. <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by, by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested – they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yep. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife, Maureen Jordan, Mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? Well, space is in the news nowadays, and it's interesting that a local company, Gilmore Space Technologies, they are on the cutting face of what's going on uh, in this area. And we have Adam Gilmore is joining me on the program right now to talk about it. Adam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Peter. Yeah. Now, look, before we start talking, well, now we should probably position you. Tell us about Gilmore Space Technologies. Okay, so we're a rocket company. We've been around for five years. We've got 55 employees. We're based on the Gold Coast. Uh, We've got some pretty innovative propulsion technology that differentiates us from a lot of our other competition. Um, It's a lot safer, it's a lot greener, um, and it's a lot simpler and cheaper to make. So we've been working very hard. We want to get our first orbital launch attempt in 2022. Uh, just today, we announced our first contract with an Australian company. It's our second actual launch contract, but it's the first one with Australia. Uh, so we're definitely gaining some traction. We've been testing a lot of technology, and next year we'll be testing a heck of a lot more. Okay. Um, I want to throw this to you. I want to come back to, to why in the hell someone living on the Gold Coast wants to make rocket ships. That, like, I know Elon Musk is doing it with Tesla and whatever, but – Normal people would wonder why a normal Australian, and and certainly, Adam, you look like a normal Australian, uh, why you want to do it. What is the the economic potential, apart from, I guess, the interest, but there has to be economic potential because you're putting a lot of money into it as well. But before I just go on any further, there are stories around today about America, you know, uh, mining the moon. Um, And that got me interested, like, is it going to become like Antarctica? Will it be battling over rights and we'll be dividing up the moon? You'd have at least a 
a position on this being someone who's preoccupied with a thing called space? Yeah, my view on that is I think possession is going to be nine-tenths of the law. I think it's very hard to get to the moon. It's very hard to get onto the surface of the moon. Approximately four or five countries have managed to do that. More will. But I think it's going to be a case of people will land on the moon and they'll designate an area around where they are that they're mining or, or operating from, and it'll be very hard to, to kick them off. I mean, I, I'm often asked about, you know, settlements on Mars and, 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 and bases on Mars. Mm. And I'm like, you know, if, if some country goes and sets up a base on, on Mars, it is so hard to get there that, you know, if anybody else can even bother to kick them off, there's no point. You may as well just go to somewhere else on, on Mars. And I think the moon's going to be the same thing. It's a big place. Mm. But I think it will end up like Antarctica. I think people will designate that they've got areas of influence or where they operate from. So that's why I think it's important Australia has to get get going in space and launch and make sure that we get up there and we put some claims down and, you know, we get our share of, of the resources that are there. Okay, so let's concentrate on you and Gilmore Space Technologies. How does someone like you get so interested in rocket ships and space that you create a business around it? Well, I've always been a space fan, um, but I started my career as a banker. So I spent 20 years in financial markets. And, you know, the job I had, I had a look at a lot of different industries. We used to deal with corporations uh, from big to small. And space became an industry that was taking off. Uh, so I looked at it as a chance for me to finally get out of banking and go into the space market. Um, you know, we, when I was a banker, you know, we started thinking that Apple was fantastic well before Apple took off mm. uh, and Facebook and all these other companies. We were used to spotting technology trends. Mm. So, you know, space for me was a big technology trend that was about to take off. I did a lot of research and I found that access to space was the bottleneck. It's quite a lot easier to build a satellite on the ground, but you've got to get it to space and there's not many companies taking it to space. So that's why I focused on rockets and rocket technology. And mm. um, since then I've gotten lucky because satellites have just boomed. There's so many more satellites being made now than when I started. And it looks like a fantastic market. We estimate the launch opportunity for small satellites is 5 billion US dollars a year. Mm. So how many rivals do you have out there? Because you would know worldwide how many you've got. We've got around seven to ten what I would call credible rivals, mm. um, but that doesn't bother me because we've calculated the amount of launches that are needed, and if there's ten rivals, everyone has to launch between 50 and 100 times a year to satisfy the market mm. and to put that in the context, the company that's launched the most ever SpaceX and the most they've ever done is 18 launches a year. So the market is big enough to, to take a lot of competitors. Yeah. I was just interviewing uh, an American fund manager called WCM and they're one of the best in the world. And they often go looking for companies uh, which they describe, describe as picks and shovels type companies, which in a sense, he, he was talking about how the, the modern world is filled with all these new gadgets which all have little chips in them to you know, so we can talk to our refrigerator and our refrigerator talks to our lights and our lights talk to our cars and whatever. And he said, we don't want to be 
in the businesses that are fighting for that kind of work. We want to be in the businesses that actually make the chips and they, they can sell those chips to all those different companies from Samsung to Apple to whatever. And you're going to be in that kind of space that all the satellite companies will, comp- will be com- competing, but you won't be competing with very many actual putters of satellites into space. That's right. I mean, we're addressing a market that, you know, just in the number of companies is probably a hundred times more than there are rocket companies and, you know, billions and billions of dollars more in revenue that they make compared to rocket companies. So we do get to address a much bigger market than what is just rockets with our business. What's going to hold you back? Like you actually haven't um, done a launch yet. Is that is that right? We haven't done an orbital launch yet. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And so when will that happen and what's been holding you back? And once you start doing it, will it be easy to reproduce it? Okay. So it takes a while to make a rocket. The average rocket company from startup to first launch is around eight years. Um, We're looking to do that, or eight to 10. So we're looking to do it in seven. Um, They're very complicated vehicles. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're looking to first launch in 2022, and then after that, we want to start frequently launching. So once we finalise the design, even next year, we're setting up a production line and start manufacturing multiple rockets a year. Mm. And so once we start in 2022, we want to ramp up to 12 launches a year by 2025. Do you get your rocket back when you send it out there? And the they- initial ones, no. The initial ones, we won't get it back. But the design of our rocket enables us to reuse the first stage in the future, and mm. we're looking to do that. Mm. It's, it sounds so unbelievably complicated. You know, when you, you walked away from your ob- probably overpaid banking job and decided to do this, did, you, did, you, did your business plan actually accurately define the challenges you're going to have? No, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> I think if I knew now what I knew then, I might not have started it, but um, I've always had the philosophy that what I don't know, somebody else does. Mm. So, you know, we've hired a really, really good team from people all over the world that have built rockets already. And it's it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. It's, it's not that hard, but it is hard. But you just got to do it step by step and overcome problem after problem and you eventually get there. Um, how much does it cost to make a rocket? Well, it, it depends on who's making it. We estimate ours is going to cost above $5 million and less than 10 mm. um, which means that's very competitive uh, in the global market. Yeah. Um, where did you get your money from? How, how, you know, Gilmore Space Technologies, you must have spent a fair bit of money already. So where did you oh, get your we money have, from? We've, we've gotten uh, venture capital backing. Yeah. Um, so our main investors are Blackbird and Main Sequence, mm. plus a whole lot of others. So we've done two rounds of venture financing, and we're actually um, going to do a third round by the end of the year. So I'm actually actively talking to investors at the moment about raising the next round of money. Yeah, and so therefore, your first launch in 2022 is a, a, a really important milestone for not only you as the founder, but the the investors as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, the market standard generally, companies that have successfully made it to orbit are worth at least a billion US dollars. So our investors are, are very anxious for us to get that first <laughs> Yes, I can imagine that. Now, what about the, the – is there any desire or any need to go public? 
We have a desire to go public. I think um, eventually we will go public. Um, we're not in a hurry to do that, but I think for the sake of employees and and even our investors wouldn't mind if we if we went public. Mm. But that's going to be well into when we're revenue producing. You know, like I, I wouldn't say we'd do that before twenty twenty five. You know, so, we want to be very consistently making money. Yeah. So, uh, so you're presuming that between 2022 and 2025, uh, you'll be in a loss-making situation, but with rising, significantly rising revenue? No, not really. We think we're going to be cash flow positive in 2023. I just want to have a lot of runs on the board before I list. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Sustainable cash flows. Have you had any government support? It seems to me you should have, but have you? Very little, um, very little. We've had no money from the space agency, which which we're frustrated with, and we've had a little bit of money from the federal government, which we're happy with, but we'd like a lot more. And we're starting to talk to defence. Defence is starting to get very serious about space, so we're hoping that we can get some some investment out of the defence market. Mm. Why has the space agency shown so little uh, encouragement? I think they're a little bit risk averse. I think they view launch as something that they think takes a lot of money and will suck up a lot of their funds. And, you know, obviously we don't feel that it is, you know, we're getting most of our money from venture capital. Um, so I think it's just something that they want to do later on and they don't realize that, you know, help now is worth a lot more than in the future. Mm. Um, so we're hoping that they change their mind. What is like? I think it's pretty easy for my listeners to understand the the economic interest um, for you guys. Um, but what is the economic and the and the public interest in the government um, helping you to be a big success? Because you'd be our only rocket company, wouldn't you? Well, we're the only like. Um, there's some. Um Enthusiasts around and yeah. some people that are just starting up, um, but we're the only one that's quite substantial with a substantial technology development and a big headcount. Mm. I mean, the, one of the things we keep trying to get the message across to Australians is every Australian uses space technology every day. Mm. They don't realise it. They use it every time they look at a GPS map to, to find something. They use it every time they go to the ATM and withdraw money. They use it every time they use their pay wave to tap. Mm. Um, and there's more and more cases, you know, the farming industry, the mining industry are massive users of space infrastructure. Um, you know, bushfires heavily use satellite infrastructure to, to manage bushfires and the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, there's a lot of societal benefits. Um, a lot of military strategists think that if all the satellites in space got knocked out, it would send humanity back into the middle ages of technology. Mm, yeah, and and is there is there with either Labor or the coalition uh, a politician who's championing your your cause and your future? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Karen Andrews is the minister for for industry, and she's the de facto space minister, and she's been very supportive. Um, and on the Labor Party side, uh, Bob Carr is a big supporter, Senator Carr of space, and then. The other person that was very supportive was Arthur Sinodinas. So I think there's bipartisan support for that. Even in the state government, both sides of the Liberals and Labor are very pro-space. Okay, so just draw us a, a timeline of what you think is going to happen to the company over the next few years. 
Well, we're going to build up our technology and do our first launch in 2022. And then from 2023 onwards, we're going to start doing a lot more commercial launches. In 2024, 2025, we want to start taking payloads to the moon. So cargo payloads, not people. And towards the end of the decade, we're going to be working on human spaceflight as well. So have you uh, learned anything or have you been encouraged um, by what Elon Musk and Tesla have done? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm definitely a fan of SpaceX and what they've done. Um, you know, they, they've gotten a lot of government money, billions and billions and billions of dollars of government money. But what they've done sincerely is they made rocket technology a heck of a lot cheaper. Like they've taken a dollar of the US taxpayer a lot further than any other rocket company in history. So I think, you know, what their achievement is, is doing a lot with not a lot of money relative to their competitors. Um, and, and has that then delivered um, intellectual property that you guys have been able to benefit from in the sense that what they've developed has shown you ways in which you can do what you want to do more economically? Somewhat. I mean, um, a lot of it, a lot of it's like know-how, you know, sometimes humanity works. If, if you know that somebody else can do something in one year, then you think, okay, if they can do it in a year, then it's possible. How do we do it within a year? Mm. So I think a lot of the things we've taken away from SpaceX is, you know, that they can do things very quickly, that they put talented people into a program, empower them and get results quickly. And we're doing the same thing here. Well, Adam, it seems to me that, you know, obviously you're not technically skilled to build a rocket. So your financial skills has made you a, um, a rocket ship project manager. Is that a fair call? I say that. I, I, I like to think of myself as the chief technology officer. I've done a lot of research on, on rockets and propulsion systems, and I sit into all the engineering discussions and, and give a lot of value add. But I have a team of engineers under me that do all the – all the hard work and the, the bits and bobs. Okay. So the, the question I have for you is this, that you're also the entrepreneur, you're also the person who would have put m the most skin in the game uh, on, a, on a relative basis. You might have someone who's put, put more money in along the way because they're just wealthier than you. But this was a massive gamble walking away from the finance industry when we all know people there are fabulously overpaid for doing vir virtually you know, unimportant work. This is important work. But have you had many sleepless nights in, in making this get to this stage where you are now? I've been, I've been very stressed. You know, they, I think Elon Musk actually had a fantastic quote where he said, being an entrepreneur is like eating glass. <laughs> so, you know, I've had a few cases where I've been very, very frustrated uh, but I've never looked back at doing it. You know, I, I think relentless pursuit is what we're doing. Um, I'm having a good time. It's a great industry to work in. The people are lovely. Um, it is vitally important work. It's good for for our for our nation. It's good for our, our humanity. Um, I think it's the future. I think the next hundred thousand years we're in space. So this is the beginning of all of that. Mm. And, and is there a long-suffering partner who's had to deal with you and your economic business dream? Yeah, absolutely. My wife um, is also one of the founders of the company and she was the 
main approver of me leaving my job and starting the company and, and has been right. you know, behind me all the way. And, yeah. she, and, and she's the head of marketing and communications at the company. Yeah. So she's a vital contributor to the company. Yeah. I don't think she was, um, she was bought in at the beginning. I think she's becoming to believe now. Good stuff, mate. It's uh, yeah, and it's, I have a, I have my brother as well, which I started the company with James, um, and he started the company with me. He, him and I started it together. Okay, and so are there are there uh, parents who are sitting at home worrying about you two all the time, or what? No, I don't think so. I think they're pretty proud of you know oh. parents are proud of whatever you do. So anything we do, yeah. they're proud of. Uh, yeah. Very supportive. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Well, Adam, it's a great story. Um, we look forward to twenty twenty two. I hope I can uh, talk to you. Then, um, when you launch, should be fantastic. And uh, I think all Australians are proud of people like you have had a go and uh, you're heading in the right direction. Thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. My pleasure, Peter. All the best. If you'd like to learn about some great stocks to buy as soon as I find out about it, think about taking a free trial of the Switzer Report. I've recruited some of the best investing brains in Australia, and we do our best to share great money-making stock ideas with our subscribers. Just go to switzerreport.com.au for a 21-day free trial. Well, joining me now is Tom Griffiths, the founder of Emma and Tom's. Uh, I've known these guys for a long time. I, th I guess they would have been youngsters when they first started, Emma and Tom's. I I'm definitely looking forward to rolling back the history, um, but also I'm keen to know how this business, which has certainly grown into a national brand, it may well be an international brand, we'll find out in a second, but certainly a national brand, how it's dealt with the challenges of the coronavirus. Tom, welcome to the Pizza Switzer Show. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having us. Uh, Tom, Emma and Tom's and the coronavirus, what's it done to the business? Uh, where our sales are down probably well, more than 30%. Um, so that was... Um, so JobKeeper, JobKeeper has helped. On. Thank yeah. you, Josh. Um, sales are down. We're looking at running a, a better business on a lower turnover. Mm. So we've obviously cut a lot of costs out. We've taken advantage of all of the... Um, opportunities that you've been offered as a business. Mm. So we've done the you know, the principal and interest moratoriums with the banks. We've done our, our rental deals. We've applied for and um, retained JobKeeper. So we've we've dealt on that front you know really well. Um, Emma's done a great job in the office as she made it sort of a COVID safe office months before that would have been a phrase, mm. a thing. So we've had very good sort of you know rotation of staff, distancing, sterilising that whole sort of routine. So there's been a very much um, both distancing in terms of space and of coming and going, just yeah. timing, you know, all that. Um, we've cut some products out of the out of the lineup to reduce, obviously, our, our inventory costs, um, and we are also just you know, trying to plug a little, you know, obviously bad months in April and May because you know, you're caught by surprise. Yeah. So you can't just sort of slash and burn in you yeah. know, in a week. Okay. Um, right now, though, we're back to sort of um, a good state of of profitability, EBIT, um, driven by New South Wales and Queensland. Mm. So fortunately, we're a national brand. Um, the international sales have fallen off a cliff. And that mm. happened early. So you, you were um, selling overseas? Yeah. 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 And you know, obviously, as you know, we have like 35 vans running around four states. And with those mm. vans comes obviously an overhead that's, that's you know, with the sale that they make, whereas obviously an export sale or a supermarket sale is pure margin. Mm. So even though we didn't have a lot of export exposure, 
it still hurts you because it, yeah, it takes away margin. Yeah. And so um, tell us what it's like for the business. Because luckily for you, you escaped the, lock, the second lockdown in Melbourne. Um, but how much of your business is not operating because of the lockdown, the second lockdown? Um, we're, we're obviously an essential service because we're food mm. and, we, and we supply supermarkets. But you know, only an hour ago, I, I got an email, CC, an email from Emma because um, I'm now in Sydney. I, I left Victoria uh, seven weeks ago. I've got two young daughters in Sydney, so I took a view that Melbourne wasn't going to improve and I didn't want to get locked out of my daughters. Mm. So I drove over the border and did my two weeks isolation. Um, but you need to have a permit to work. So when you are stopped in Melbourne in the street, mm. what are you doing here? And if you can't say, obviously, you're shopping mm. for food or you have an essential job signed off by your employer, you know, you're in trouble. Yeah. So it's it's become a very, you know, militant, sad place to be, sadly. Yeah. And, and, do, you, and do you make stuff in Melbourne which is still being made under the, the same kind of processes or are they restricted processes because of the lockdown? From what I understand, production's been maintained pretty smoothly. Mm-hmm, okay. So we've been okay there. Obviously, there's a, a few freight issues getting things into yeah, state. Getting, or get, once you make it there, can you get it to, to New South Wales and South Australia? Well, look, having been through checkpoints myself, mm. they funnel every vehicle, every car in mm. um, and the big trucks, were just, the, there's a huge mobile signs, mm. the big trucks saying, go straight. Mm. So the trucks just punch on through. Yeah. Um, I imagine they audit the odd one, but on the whole, you know, trucks just go straight through. Okay. How long do you think it's going to take to get back to normal if we get, say, a vaccine by January, as um, Minister Hunt has been suggesting? I can only obviously quote our business. Um, our business came back really quickly, even in Victoria, you yeah. know, in May, June, before it hit yeah. again. Um, looking at historical evidence... And this may be different to the GFC, but I did note that um, in, in in the US, um, the share market p- plunged three times after the GFC because of rational expectations. People mm. go, oh, we're doing all right. Actually, we're not. Bang. Mm. And so there's this sort of, you know, dead cat bounce type recovery. I can see that being probably worse because of, I think people have been really slammed. Mm. Okay. So that's the coronavirus and Emma and Tom's. It's interesting you've kind of implied, and I've actually written this a few times, that threats like this to any business actually can become a bit of an opportunity. What are the opportunities that have come out of this, Tom? We've obviously had a damn good look at the business and we've moved very, very quickly. Mm. Um, obviously, you appreciate every bit of margin you've got. So mm. rather than perhaps focusing on growth, as we may have in the past, we are focusing on cash. Mm getting money in, you know, it's very important for me to maintain the employment of our team. Mm. And if we can get through um, COVID-19 and say we supported 40, 50 people, that's an amazing achievement. Mm. No doubt. What about the the businesses that you have to deal with, the big supermarkets, um, the smaller delicatessens, or all those ones that use your your product? Has, has it has it been a sense of cooperative? A cooperation or has it been a bit challenging, say, even dealing with landlords or whatever? Yeah, well, on the whole, people have been exceptionally um, uh, easy, easy to work with. Mm. We've had a few jumping up and down. Um, yeah, they're the ones we might have. It's, 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 it's funny. The ones who jump up and down, we might be two days late with a $4,000 payment. <laughs> and the big ones yeah. have done, like everyone's done, payment plans, 
which we can meet mm. and we've agreed to and we've had our meetings and gone around the creditors and um, done it that way. But, you know, we're fortunate in that we've dealt with these people for more than 10 years. Mm. So we've got a bit, of a, a bit of a track record there. Okay. Let's wind back the, um, the clock to when you first started. So when did you kick off? 2004. We first met 2005. Okay. And at the time um, you, you were an accountant um, and Emma was... It was at that time she had just finished being head of consumer marketing for the National Australia Bank. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, none of you had any experience in food apart from the fact that uh, you ate a lot of it and uh, she made it, didn't she? Emma <laughs> was um, employed by Uncle Ben's, the Mars pet food oh, yeah. business, for five years in Albury. Yeah. And whilst it's not the making anything, but to be a sort of a commercial person. She was in commercial. Yeah. She was buying fish for whiskers and kitty cat yeah. and things. Okay. So making a good tasty pet food for a pet mm. is quite a similar process of bottling a juice off. Yeah. You know, good ingredients, packaging, mm. preserving, etc. Okay. So then we, you had a bit of a history, mm. um, but you're a, a chartered accountant. How did you find basically giving up the, the collar and tie and whacking on the T-shirt and, and doing those sorts of things, which you must have done in the early days because you, you were small when you first kicked off? Yeah, you know, I, I I spent days and days out in vans going around seeing customers, and you know I enjoyed that. I I enjoy sort of the the activity of it and mm. and and the relationships. And you know I've still been going around, particularly in the past few months, instead of talking to my customers because mm. you know they're the ones who buy the buy the juice. But Tom, you know when you and Emma's you know came up with the plan, it still was kind of unusual for two people like you to decide to make. Well, it was juice was the first thing, right. wasn't it? And it was quality juice and you realised there was a hole in the market. So that was your commercial sense. But you still had to actually come up with something that tasted good and all that sort of stuff. What was that process like? You know, it took day? months because obviously you do it in the kitchen using fruit from the market and it yeah. tastes great. Mm. Then you go and buy commercially sourced fruit and mix it up in a thousand litre tank and it tastes terrible. <laughs> right. And it's depressing. And it's a very costly exercise. It costs you a bit. Yeah, yeah. it does. That would have cost a thousand bucks. Um, and you tip it out and start again. Mm. And then you realise, you know, you've got to choose the very best of everything because mm. even 7% of something in a, in a, in a blend, mm. if, it's, if it's not good, it takes the whole thing away. How many, how many months did it take you to perfect the, the brands that you brought to market? We thought we'd launch in six months. It took us 12. Yeah. Um, that cost you a lot of money, the fact that you miscalculated how long it would take to go to market? It's more just the burn before you get into business. But, yeah. you know, we wanted to get going. Um, our final hurdle was our bottling plant couldn't put the labels on the bottle because they were square bottles. Mm. You couldn't just wrap it around like you would on a round bottle. So we got, them, we got the bottles contract labelled, which meant we were shipping air around Victoria because, you know, bottles mm. um, had them contract labelled for the knockdown price of seven cents a bottle, which was obviously mm. a heavy... Yeah. Cost to us, but it got us in the game. That was the idea. Get started. Mm. And I, I always remember because in Sydney at the same time, I think Nudie was kicking off with Sympathic and, and you, you were in Melbourne. And you both use fantastic marketing strategies, and it's often been called tribal marketing. Tell us about what, what you did to, to get really well known in Melbourne in the first instance. Our challenge has always been to do as much marketing with as little spend as possible because, yeah, as yeah. you know, there's a conga line of people with their hand out wanting yeah. to spend. Yeah. So our main point was to get great juice into really great accounts. Mm. So you walk into a cafe and Nick, who you know, says, try one of these Emeron Thomas juices with your lunch mm. and 
you take his recommendation, you buy it, you like it, you haven't been advertised at, and you tell your friends. And that was the strategy, and it actually it does work. It just takes a long time. Mm. But you also turned up at big events, didn't you? Big events were were pretty important to you. Tell us about that. We kicked off sponsoring a, a cycling event in Melbourne with 12,000 cyclists caught around the bay in a day because mm. when, of course, we first launched, we were bottling once a week and not selling at all. We didn't have enough customers. So we stockpiled for three weeks and gave out 12,000 bottles as a kickoff. Mm. And we've done so that. every every. Everything got a bottle. Got a bottle. This new juice, Emerald. And what that cost you, Tom? Can you remember? Well, it would have cost us probably about um, somewhere north of twelve grand in those days. Mm. But our view also is to turn sort of setbacks into opportunities, mm. and you would have to otherwise, you know, chuck the juice out. Mm. So we've used it to a good, you know, for a positive outcome. Were you able to measure the the success of that kind of marketing? As you know yourself, you can't judge your your marketing spend's impact. But we got a lot of emails mm. saying thank you. Um, and it got us, got us on the road. You know, mm. it, got, it got juice in people's hands, which we still think is an effective use of marketing, although obviously nowadays we're trying to be a bit broader than this sort of picking off one person at a time. Mm, yeah, but, but certainly the, the old-fashioned taste and try method with food has worked for ages. You see them in department stores, outside cafe, uh, you know, bakeries and stuff like that. It works, doesn't That's it? That's right. I did hundreds and hundreds of, of tastings. Mm. And you sit there with the little, you know, thimbles of juice and hand them out and talk to people. Okay. Even doing events now. Mm. If we do a running event, you know, I'll literally talk to 2,000 people in an hour and a half. So it's a pretty good download. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. But Tom, um, given the fact that, you know, you had worked for big organisations and so, so had Emma, what were the, the big lessons that you picked up being a small business in the first instance? We'd call you a, a medium-sized business now, but you were small when you started. Along the way, you learn a lot of stuff at the coalface that you didn't get at university or even working at the coalface in the big business. What were the big lessons, the big shocks that really taught you stuff? I mean, there's no IT help desk. <laughs> yeah. you know, every problem you've got, it's yeah. yours to solve. You can't yeah. just handball it. So we used to share the free call number. Whenever the phone rang, we'd sort of be petrified as to what was the issue now. Mm. And then you realised it was all about solving issues. Mm. That was it. Um, so – and. We then realised even further that the more you do yourself, the better you do it. So taking control, taking ownership. So, so the sort of stuff that big organisations and experts on leadership you know, talk about micromanaging in the in the early days, micromanaging is compulsory. Do you think you've got to do it? I mean, one of our probably faults was we hired two sales staff from day one almost. Yeah. When really we should have been out there. I mean, doing more ourselves mm -hmm. as the face of the brand. What about the um, the cash flow challenges? All small businesses have that. Did you start with a, a fabulous amount of money that, to make it easy for you to, to succeed? No, we've knifed and forked it from day one. Mm. Um, we ended up going into our own cash van business for that very reason. You know, we had one distributor, so we're getting one check a, a week or a month, and they were having their own problems, so that was slowing down. So a mate lent us 100000 bucks, and he charged me a bottle of 389 per day until it was repaid. <laughs> and That's a pretty high interest rate, isn't it? He lived nearby. <laughs> it was okay in the end. Um, and we, got, we started selling door-to-door -door ourselves. And they were cash fans, so we turned our cash flow from 90 days to zero days. Mm. And that funded the turnaround. Mm. And so when you look at the, you know, the, the big lessons along the way, um, what about – you know, working out the marketing spend and the kind of return on that marketing spend. You see it was hard to work out 
for around the bay and all that sort of stuff. Over time, have you become better and cl- and more clever about your marketing spend and the return on investment? Yeah, we're still very, very um, tight on it. I've got a fabulous marketing executive, Kimberly, um, who's doing a, just a, a tremendous job. Yeah. And as we've got bigger, of course, we've been able to appoint people who are more specialised yeah. in their areas. You know, I used to have a go at it. Mm. Um, and now I've seen how Kimberly goes about it. You can see why she's the professional and I'm not. Yeah. Similarly, I used to be sort of do some CFO work and now we've got a really great CFO. Um, and I used to help Emma with the new product developments. Now we've got a gun NPD manager. So as we've got bigger, we'll be able to employ people who are better suited for the roles. Yeah. What marketing worked the best? You know, from where you started, what – because there'll be a lot of people listening to this who might be toying with the idea of going into business for the first time, or they may already have a business. What do you think's worked for you the best, Tom? We've got 30 to 40 vans running around, and if you look at a van like a bus stop, mm. um, a bus stop's got two sides, a van has four, but if you apply the same cost of advertising to a van, you know, we're getting an annual gain there of sort of $4 million of ad spend. Mm. So I think the, the fact that we are... A real pe- real people because we're not a pseudo brand. We actually mm. there are an Emma and Tom. Yeah. The team have got a real presence in the streets, going out to all the great cafes and IGAs, etc. That people visit. The vans are present in the street, mm. and then on top of that, we've been doing you know the events and things around. So we are, I think, thought of as being part of the part of the, the um, community and a bit of a, a little a little part of people's lives. Mm. Now I can't remember how we met, but a, a lot of small businesses that I met along the way was a time when I was writing uh, as a small business editor for the Australian before we, the, the Sky Business Program cooked off. And, and occasionally I would be contacted by PR firms. Was there a PR firm in those early days or did you guys contact me? I, I can't recall. You had no Stuart Gregor? <laughs> Stuart Gregor. Of go. course. And, and Stuart... Liquid ideas. Um, and now Four Pillars Gin. Yeah, Four Pillars Gin, who's done very well. So that must have been a decision on your part. That was, because we had no idea. Yeah. I mean, more than no idea, I'd, I'd not even been working in Australia for the past eight years. Mm. So it wasn't like I had some sort of reference points. Mm. And nor had Emma really. She'd done two years with the NAB. But um, we were referred to Liquid Ideas and... They did help us enormously in the early days with our positioning. Mm. Uh, even one of the principals, you know, Angie there, mm. she said in one meeting just haphazardly because people want to look after themselves. Mm. And Emma and I jumped on that and said, that's it, look after yourself. Yeah. That's our strap line. Yeah. So and, we, and you still use it We still today. use that. So, yeah. you know, I, we, we did do a lot of preparation work in the early t- days and mm. it's still paying off. Yeah. And, and I, I think – I'm glad you reminded me of that because I did forget that. And Stuart Gregor and Angie started a business called Liquid Ideas and the idea was they were initially helping wine businesses get well-known, you know, the smaller wineries get well-known. And some of the big brands of today started with Liquid Ideas. But, of course, other drinks like you guys came along. Um, but that was would have been a gamble in the sense that you had to invest. They would have been charging you money. Um was that a difficult thing or do you thought it was something you had to do? No, I'm, we're happy with that spend. Mm. There's been other PR spend that I, I might have you know, pulled the pin on earlier. Mm. But for that, for that spend with those guys, the Endigas launched, mm. I think it's part of the sort of the, the capital you need to get going. Yeah. Now, Tom, I am using you for, to help other people as well, but I know you, you don't mind doing it. What about entering awards? Have you entered awards, won awards, and then got publicity as a consequence of it? 
We've started to. We've got some. We've won some food awards. Mm. Um, I would have thought so. Our Kefir Water won a award just recently. Mm. Um, we believe awards actually are a very effective way of getting some notoriety yeah. and some recognition. Obviously, fame will call it rather than notoriety. Well, and as much for, <laughs> but as much for the also for the products, not not us. I mean, you know, Emma and I can walk down Pitt Street mm. or Collins Street, and no one knows who we are, which is perfect. Mm. So we don't need to do a Branson to pump the brand. Mm. That's actually a good thing too. Mm. Uh, in fact, quite funny recently, you, you remember Hamish Blake was was um, jumping on people's Zoom calls, yeah. And three of my team were doing a Zoom call. Um, three girls and Emma wasn't one of them, and they carried it off beautifully. And mm. I thought, how good these the, these three can represent us. Mm. And Hamish is saying, "Where's the BT? Where's the Big E?" Mm. And we weren't there, and it didn't matter. Yeah. So that's gold to me. Yeah, without a doubt. And so th- that that is a, a really interesting point because I I can remember. The first time I um, came in contact with the, the guy who started NYOB was when he won the, the, the Telstra Award. Uh, and as a consequence of that, he eventually sponsored the Telstra Small Business Award. So it is a really good strategy, you know, getting into awards. So, Tom, what's the future of Emma and Tom's? Let's imagine the coronavirus eventually gives way to a new brand of normality. What's this, what's this business of yours going to do? Well, you know, as you know, we're sitting smack bang in the middle of the well-being space mm. and I believe firmly that well-being is going to be high on the agenda coming out of COVID. Yep. Everyone obviously, I think we're living a simpler, uh, more local life, uh, particularly for a few years and I think once again people's well-being will be at the uh, ab- absolute four and to know that they can sort of get our products now, we're now in up to um, 8,000 Australian outlets mm. so we're, we're, we're very available and we know that we're not going to swing every consumer across to our healthy natural um, products straight away. Uh, the uh, the Snickers bar fans will have to have their apparition and come across to us. So you, from Snickers to a, a healthy Emma and Tom bar, you're yeah, saying. or from Sprite to a kefir water. You know, yeah. that's the that's the leap. And when they want to do it, we're there. Mm. And we've been toying with a yet to be released new strap line mm. to to encourage that, mm. saying that Emma and Tom's you're good to go. Mm. which is going to annoy the grammar Nazis because it's not you are good to go, where, where you're good to go. <laughs> now, but I, I guess an, the, a related question is, and, and I've actually, I don't know if I've ever, ever said this to Alison Watkins at, at Coke, but I've always thought that you know, Coke needed to get more in, into the, the health side. And, of course, over time, they have, but they're still a long way away from being solid. Have, have the big companies ever come knocking on the door to say, well, it's about time we took over Emma and Tom's? Yeah, we've, we've had a, you know, a number of, of approaches mm. um, and we've, we, we still maintain those communication lines. Mm. Um, we've always felt up until now we've had a lot to do ourselves. Mm. But I do agree. I think there's um, you know, the fact that we are a very fast-moving new product developer the brand is in the right place, and you can't just develop an off-the-shelf brand that says we're the new well-being brand. No, uh, that just takes time. Mm. Um, we actually did supply Coke for quite a long time. We supplied their vending machines because their machines that were in regulated centres like schools and hospitals mm. had to have some healthy snacks. So mm. we were the, we were the provider of those to Coca-Cola in Australia. Mm, okay, so. Uh, venture capitalists, have, have you ever needed to go to venture capitalists? Yeah, one thing we've always needed is cash. Mm. You know, we've always, like I said, we've knifed and forked it. It's been Emma and myself mm. and, you know, that's been a, a task in itself for 15 years because, mm. you know, growth requires capital. Mm. So we're always open to, you know, helpful ideas. Mm. 
Okay. Tom Griffiths, great to see you, mate, and good luck going forward. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. That's the show for this week. Wasn't that a great story of Tom and Emma? Of course, Emma and Tom's, but we were talking to Tom. Talk to you next week. I'm Peter Switzer. Quentin Tom! Quentin Tom!